0: And you may be seated. Really good to see you. If you're new here at a fellowship, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here. We are absolutely delighted to have you with us. And today we are starting the book of Revelation. So if you want to turn to the final book of the Bible, uh, we are going to systematically make our way through this book. And there is really no other book in the Bible that has generated such fascination like the book of Revelation. I mean, there is all sorts of mystery uh, There's people all around the world, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you have heard about the book of Revelation. It's shrouded in mystery. It's, even though everyone knows about the book, the book itself is actually rarely read. Certainly not read through its entirety. And yet, here we are in this world. And if you take a look at our world, it is like in bondage to pseudo-spirituality. Of every stripe and form. But not only do you have just this spiritual chaos and you can just kind of make it up as you go kind of religion, whatever works for you, as long as it's not the one true faith revealed in the Word, uh, then I want you to know like the world has an option for you and you can make it up anything you want. But then on top of that, though, it kind of seems as if our world is just spinning out of control. I mean, we, we see it. Like, we see, like, just this moral unraveling. It's as if everything that God has ordained in terms of actually the way things are, what true morality, what fruition and fulfillment and vitality really are, life with God, there is an aggressive, antagonistic movement to dismantle that in every way, shape, or form, whether it be through, like, disregarding marriage, uh, killing people, whether they're in the womb, or, hey, <laughs> Your, your life is over. Let's, let's just do this real quick. I mean, it just it permeates our schools. It, it is found in our culture. There's this whole reversal of morality that is aggressively being presented. And in fact, if you don't go along with it, they're, they're going to cancel you out and make your life miserable. You have missed it. But not only do you see this immoral unraveling and all this cultural chaos, you're like, what is going on in our world? You've got wars, natural disasters, pandemics, just kind of an upheaval in society, things that we can't even fully explain. And this is the world in which we live. And one of the responses to that is to lead to kind of like absolute fear, certainly like having a fear of the great unknown. And I want you to know, even though the world doesn't have answers as to what is to come, God does, and he has declared it in his word specifically in the book of revelation and god does not want his people living and walking in fear he wants us living in his hope and god replaces fear with his hope when we have a full understanding of what is to come and who is really in charge and that's what the book of revelation does now I would imagine at some point you've actually tried to to read this book. Uh, I remember after I became a believer in college, started following Jesus, and, you know, I knew nothing about the Bible, right? Okay, didn't know hardly anything. And when I actually tried to read the book of Revelation, I'm like, oh, my, I have no idea what this might be about. I didn't even have a category for what I was reading. It just seemed like this great mystery. And for, I would say, the first several years of just following Jesus, I just kind of avoided this book. I knew a couple of verses, you probably know the exact same ones, and that was it. Didn't know context. I just I just really didn't know and didn't understand that book. But now for several decades, I have been reading and rereading, studying, listening to the book of Revelation. And I want you to know that this book has dramatically transformed my life. Starting first of all with How I worship. My understanding of Jesus Christ is actually incomplete without the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation shows me who Jesus is and how he's reigning and what really is taking place. Furthermore, it actually gives me an understanding of what is to come. So yeah, I see all the chaos that's going on in our world, moral unraveling, but I want you to know, I know who's in charge. In fact, I know what is going to take place and how it's going to end and what eternity looks like, not on the basis of imagination, but on the basis of factual truth that is given to us in the book of Revelation. And furthermore, when my own life kind of seems to be spinning out of control, and I've got some unknowns some things that are painful and I don't know how they're going to work out, some things that can even keep me up at night. But when I focus on who Jesus is, as revealed in this book, and his sovereign control over all things, I can move back to a place of peace and of equilibrium and even hope. But it all comes from this book. This book reveals to us who Jesus Christ is and the future of the world. And I just have a question as we begin. Are you ready? Are you ready for Christ's return? And like, how do you even get ready? Well, I want you to know this book has that answer. And a big reason why we are studying this book is because I want us as a church living in light of the return of Christ. It is a major theme throughout the New Testament. It was an emphasis of Jesus that he is coming back, but here's the reality. Most people, and really even most Christians, they never give hardly any consideration the fact that Jesus is coming back. It just doesn't come into play. They're not really concerned about it, never think about it, and don't know much about it. I want you to know that is a grave error. We're not going to be living the way God intended This book shows me how God intends for you and me to live as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. And as you might imagine... Uh, There are some different views on how this book is to be interpreted, okay? Now, what we're going to be doing, we're going to kind of systematically walk through this book, but we're going to do it kind of like in an overview fashion, okay? We could literally spend years going through this book, but I want you to have the big picture. I want you to understand who Christ is and what is to come. And there are four major uh, ways or perspectives on how to interpret the book of Revelation. And I just want you to be have at least an awareness of them. The first one is the preterist approach. And this really views the book of Revelation not as future prophecy, but as rather a historical record of events that come to about 80, like 68, and they kind of culminate in AD 70 with the uh, overthrow of Jerusalem. And so it doesn't see the book of Revelation as prophecy so much as just how the historical unfolding of these events. Um, now, there are variations of preterists. In fact, if you are a full preterist, you actually think that Jesus Christ has already returned to the earth. Uh, I most certainly do not think that that is the case, uh, nor do I think that you take into account that multiple times throughout this book, it is stated the book of Revelation is a prophecy. Then there is the historist approach. And this basically says that the book of Revelation is just a sweep of church history, starting with the apostolic period and going all the way to current times. And what it does is it takes all these different dimensions and almost turns them into like allegories of, uh, well, this is kind of like this. And so that kind of fits in with the Protestant Reformation or this period of church history. And it assigns it these kind of values. You have to be rather creative, but it's kind of the uh, historist approach. Then there's the idealist approach to the book of Revelation, and that is to say, what this really is, this is just a book about the timeless struggle between good and evil, God and Satan, and so there are spiritual truths that we are to learn that will help us in the midst of the spiritual struggle, and people of every age, you can just kind of glean some things, and that's the intent of this book. I, however, uh, land on the final one, and that's called the futurist approach. I believe in a futurist approach chapters 4 through 22 are predictions of events and people that are yet to come they are prophecies of what's to happen and if you follow the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic and remember how we have talked about hermeneutics the the principles of interpreting scripture if you take the scriptures in the natural normal sense and you do that through the all of the first 65 books why would you not do that with the final book the 66th book and that's what we do. And if you do, you will come to a futurist approach. I believe that the authorial intent is for us to understand that chapters 4 through 22 are talking about what is to come. But despite the fact that the book of Revelation may seem confusing or all these different views, so uh, why don't we just ignore it or avoid it? We can't. Revelation 22 verse 10 says this. This book concludes by giving this, this revelation. It says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. 2210, we must know what's in this book. Our life, our faith is incomplete apart from knowing what is revealed in this book. Now, there are two different dates that are given for the book of Revelation. Uh, One of the dates given is about like 68 A.D., and it's, it's actually at the time of Nero and his persecution. And so, like, if you see yourself more as a preterist, you're like, yeah, I'm going to take the early date, uh, because that fits in with all of this basically being fulfilled by the time we get to AD 70 and the overthrow of Jerusalem. Uh, there are multiple problems with that, but a big one is uh, there's no evidence, no extra writing evidence that anybody held that position. The church has overwhelmingly held to, as far as all the extra writings about this book, always held to a date of about 95 to 96 A.D., during the reign of Titus Flavius Domitian. And that the apostle John actually wrote this book while he was on a prison colony on the island of Patmos. And to help you understand what was taking place with Domitian, uh, Titus Flavius Domitian made an edict that said that he is the Lord and God. And he demanded to be worshipped. Now by this time, uh, Christianity had spread throughout the Roman Empire. So you have Christians everywhere. And they were not about to bow down to Titus Flavius Domitian. He's calling himself Lord and God, but they like, we actually know who really is the Lord and God And you're not it. And there's just no way we're going to bow down. Well, he didn't take too kindly of that. Because if you're on an ego trip, right, and you're half insane, and you wear a little wreath around your head, and you think you're a god, and some folks won't bow down to you, guess what? He's going to make your life miserable. And there had always been flare-ups of persecution, really getting started with Nero back in the late 60s. But by the time Domitian, he ramped it up. And Christians were persecuted. And by this time, all the apostles, the the ones that laid the foundation of the faith, the early followers of Jesus, all of them but one had been martyred. Some of them some really gruesome ways. But one, a guy by the name of John, the Apostle John. And so Domitian turned him into an example and had him banished to a prison colony on the island of Patmos. And at this prison colony, they what they did is mine. And so John is, in his late 80s, early 90s, and he is assigned and moved over to this island. He's given a pick and basically said, you mine yourself to death. And it was all meant to send a signal to it throughout the Roman Empire. I'm in charge, says Domitian, and this is what's going to happen to you if you defy me. Well, it's very interesting that Domitian thinking like, well, he's going to basically strike fear into the hearts of all these Christians. Actually, the exact opposite happened. Because it's on the island of Patmos that God gives the Apostle John this revelation of what is to come. And this book all of a sudden infused hope into believers. It showed them how you stand up in persecution, how you live in a wicked world and follow Jesus. And what it also did is it focused everyone's attention, if you were a believer, on the return of Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And no matter how wicked and how wild and how out of control and morally unraveled your world might be, God is in charge. And it had a huge effect on Christians and does till this very day. And so I just have a question for you. Are you ready for his return? Well, I want you to know that Christians who are preparing for Christ's return, they're doing three things that we find here in the first eight verses of the book of Revelation. And the first is, you got to know what is to come. So take a look, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So it begins by saying this is a revelation. The Greek word is apocalypsis. It's where we get our word apocalypse from. So when I say apocalypse, what do you think? Oh, crisis, right? Catastrophe. But that's not what the word means. It means to reveal, to unveil something that is not known. The book of Revelation is a revelation. It's an unveiling of who Jesus Christ is. It's rather unfortunate That people, when they hear the word apocalypse, they think of chaos because what it really is is a revelation. And the book of Revelation is unveiling far more than just future events, it's the unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about him, it's for him it's of him. If you really want to know Jesus as he really is, strip away these figments of your imagination and just kind of the culturally acceptable Jesus. If you really want to know him as he is and how he's reigning, this is your book. It'll show you. You might be rather surprised as to who Jesus really is, but if you want to see, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, what does this book actually reveal about Jesus Christ? Well, it reveals his humanity. Like in chapter 1, verse 13, he, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, the very same one, the eternal Son of God who entered into humanity, the incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas that the eternal Son of God entered into humanity, took on human form. Why, this very same one that walked the earth where his deity was veiled. This is the very same one who is reigning in heaven and is going to return. The book of Revelation also reveals his deity, the fact that he is God, and it also emphasizes his eternality. You see, when Jesus came the first time, his deity was veiled, right? People certainly, I mean, there was all the miraculous aspects of his birth, and then Jesus, when he starts his public ministry about the age of 30, here's this man, but like no one has wisdom like this, And then he does like all these miracles that are prophesied in the Old Testament and he's fulfilling them. Furthermore, he actually makes claims to deity on multiple occasions. They want to kill him. On three different occasions, he raises someone from the dead. No one's doing that except God, right? And I want you to know his deity was veiled by his humanity. But not so when he comes back. Everyone is going to see him as he really is. And so this book is given by God, but who is it given to? Most people don't even know this. It's right here in the very first line. Look at it. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Do you see that? You see, this is the Father's gift to the Son, it's a reward for his perfect, humble service how he literally became the one who would redeem a lost people for himself. He would pay the penalty of sin. As it's talked about in Philippians chapter 2, he who entered into humanity, who was absolutely, totally humble, he is going to be the one that every knee will bow and declare he is the king of kings and lord of lords. The revelation that is given shows you and chronicles the son's inheritance from the father in a miraculous and marvelous way. It's absolutely wonderful. You see Jesus Christ as he really is and how he will come in his full glory. It's the father's gift to the son. Wow, that is an amazing thought. And notice it says, to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place and he communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So he communicated it by his angel. We don't know which one this is. It's possible it's Gabriel, right? I mean, Gabriel came to Zacharias, Mary, right? Uh, Daniel. But we don't know, but we do know that this book was given by this angel. So we have the one that's communicating it. And really interesting, not only does Revelation emphasize this, but when the law of God was given, the law of Moses... I want you to know it was also given by an angel. And so here we have this word, and it's from God. It's given to the bondservant, John. But who is this book written to? Anybody see that in verse 1? Take a look. Who's it written to? It's written to his bondservants. Or your Bible might even translate it slave. It's the Greek word doulos. It actually means slave. But it's a unique kind of slave. It's a slave who served out of love and devotion to his master. And so this is why unbelievers just cannot get the book of Revelation. They're only interested in some of the like really dynamic uh, symbolism. And they're going to assign their own little values. But the whole book is just a huge mystery to them. And I'll tell you what, it shouldn't surprise you. It's actually not written to the unbeliever. Who's it written to? Bondservants. Those who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, who love him, who see him as their master and are desperately following him as Lord of their life. They love him. They're serving him. And this book unveils the person of Jesus Christ. It shows us his power in magnificent ways, in ways that you probably have never fathomed. It also shows you his whole purpose of what he's accomplishing, and it gives in prophetic detail what is to come. You see, when we see ourselves as servants of Christ, then we have the right approach to Scripture. So, for instance, do you see yourself as a servant of Jesus? Well, you can answer that question by, what does this book, what role does it have in your life? If you're like, not so much, could care less, never get around to reading it, not real important. Every once in a while, you know, read me a passage or something like that. But I'm not really interested in what God has to say in his word. I want you to know that is not the position of a bondservant. A bondservant, a slave, is very interested in the words of his master. He wants to know everything he has to say and wants to follow it. And when that's your approach, when you see yourself as a bondservant, It really changes how you approach Scripture. And so he sent and communicated through his angel, by his angel, to his bondservant, John. Most scholars hold, this is the Apostle John, this is certainly the position that I would hold. Uh, The Apostle John, really an interesting guy. So he, James and John, they're brothers, they're fishermen, right? They're sons of Zebedee. They're some of the initial followers of Jesus. In fact, they uh, become one of his 12, one of the 12 apostles. Jesus had a nickname for James and John. Anybody remember? Sons of Thunder. Man, like everywhere these guys went, man, there was trouble. There was a little bit of chaos, lots of drama maybe, raised voices. Sons of Thunder. But I'll tell you what, when you, even if you're a son of Thunder, maybe you got some anger issues going on, who knows? But you come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, why well, he changes you, shapes you, molds you into his image. Will you reflect him? It's really interesting. When Jesus Christ was literally crucified on that cross, and he's dying, do you remember that he spoke to his mother Mary and to John, the apostle? And he told John, I want you to take care of my mother. I was thinking about that. You know, if I needed someone to take care of my mother, I would not pick someone who is a son of thunder. That would be a huge problem. It would not go well. But I'll tell you what, when a son of thunder becomes a follower of Jesus and Jesus transforms a heart, all of a sudden you become useful for the master's purposes, even perhaps one of the most unique privileges ever given. I want you to take care of my mother and after mary passes from the scene the apostle john who becomes a pastor in the in ephesus at the church of ephesus he writes the gospel of john later in life and then first second and third john and he is the only remaining apostle because all the others have been killed off then god has him as an older man late late 80s early 90s writing he's writing the book of revelation the final book about 80, 95, 96. And notice what he says, verse 2 who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. He is saying, I am giving you the word of God, all that I saw. You're going to find 44 times in the book of Revelation, John writes, and I saw. And he writes it down. This is a firsthand account. This isn't some like imagination. On overdrive, he sees these things. God shows him what is about to happen, and he writes it down absolutely accurately. This is the word of God. And you're like, um, wow, you know, like Jesus Christ coming back, all these things written down. Hey, when is when is this going to happen? When are all these events going to happen? Would you like to know? You want me to tell you? Oh, it got, got pretty quiet in here, huh? tell you what, there have been many people that have said, oh, I want you to know, I got it all figured out, done my calculations, I'm a lot smarter than you, and I've been reading my Bible and doing some calculations, and I got a fancy calculator for Christmas, and I'll tell you, when Jesus Christ is coming back, and then they name a date, I want you to know that is foolishness. Do not listen to such people, because remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 24 verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, or listen to this, nor of the Son, but the Father alone. Only the Father knows. But notice, like it says in verse 1, it is going to soon take place. Or like we see in verse 3, and the time is near. And this time, it's it's speaking of a season. It's kairos, not Chronos, where it's like, it's the next successive thing. It's telling us that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. It is the next major event on God's prophetic calendar. If it meant that it's going to soon happen right after the ascension, like right next, like the very next thing, uh, like just following time, it would have God would have used different words. He has given us clarity that the next event on God's redemptive calendar. Is the second coming, and the seven years and all the events that precede it, but you don't know when it's going to happen. It can happen at any time, you know. But people like they're going, okay. Heard about this idea of like Jesus coming back. You're a Christian. You really, you really think that? You really think, honestly, that Jesus? <laughs> The guy that was, like, riding in a donkey to Jerusalem, you think he's coming back? Literally, he's going to come back to this earth. And I want you to know, the the unbelieving world, they absolutely mock this whole idea. They think it's ridiculous, and they think you're ridiculous for believing it. But, you know, it shouldn't surprise you. Don't be thrown off by that. In fact, Peter writes of this exact same mindset. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 3? He actually even phrased it. He talks about like people are going to mock and say, "Where is the promise of his coming? Are you kidding me? Jesus Christ." Okay, yeah, can't deny that he was on the earth, but you really think it's been 2000 years. You think he's coming back? Remember what Peter wrote? Listen to this. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 and 9. "But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day." The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I want you to know what's going on. It's like a couple days to God, who is over time and in time. It's just like a couple of days. A couple thousand years, what's going on? I want you to know that God is gracious He is patient. He does not want you to perish in your sins. This is your day of opportunity. You might be mocking, but I want you to know God wants to stop you dead in your tracks for you to see what's really taking place. God is being extremely gracious to you. He's drawing you to himself, to trust in his son. And he wants you ready for his return. And how will you be ready? Well, you're ready for his return when you know what is to come. Now when you look at the book of Revelation you're like, "Oh my. How do you how do you even like figure this out? Like how do you outline it?" Well, I want you to know God actually gives us the outline of the book of Revelation. And it's in three points. How cool is that? You can find it chapter 1, verse 19. You want the outline? Here it is. He says, "Therefore, chapter 1, verse 19, write the things which you have seen." So this is the past what John had seen. And then, uh, that's chapter 1, and then he says, and the things which are, that would be the present at the time of John's writing. That's Revelation chapters 2 and 3, when he gives these seven letters to seven actual churches, and every one of the letters ends with a statement, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All of you, pay attention. And then, notice what he says in verse 19, and the things which will take place after these things, here's the future. This is chapter four, verses uh, chapter four through chapter twenty-two, and I have given you in your study guide uh, my revelation at a glance. It's based right off of the outline that is given here, so you can kind of see how this whole book fits together. It's it's very interesting uh, when you see what's being written here about the these churches. Because the word church occurs 20 times in the book of Revelation. But 19 of those times is chapters 1 through 3. And then at the very end of Revelation, you have another reference to the churches. But between then, chapter 4, all the way to the end, no church. It's just one more reason why we know and believe that Christ is going to spare us, save us, rescue us, rapture us, so that we will not experience the judgments that are most certain to come. Are you ready for Jesus' return? How are you preparing? Well, first of all, you know what is to come. Second is you follow what he has said. Take a look at verse 3. He says, "Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near." So this book begins by telling you that you are blessed if you do what? Well, what does the text say? If you read and then you hear, that you are processing, you're learning, it's it's being spoken, you're being taught it, you're hearing it, and you keep it, you heed it. And in the Greek, this is a present tense. And you're like, so what difference does that make? Well, the present tense is a tense that means this is an ongoing activity. It's not that you read it once, but that God intends for his people to be a people of the book, that we're always reading, hearing, heeding. We're feeding our souls with the truth of God's word. It's become our way of life. That is always what God intended. In fact, you are blessed if that is your case. Now, you're like, what does the word blessed mean? I mean, like, you see it, people put it like, just be blessed. They put it on their walls. They got a little a plaque that says, be blessed. Be blessed. What does that even mean? Well, it means to be able to experience the riches of relationship with Christ. To have that strong sense of peace, assurance, hope, conviction, courage that comes from God. God gives it and you will be blessed. You will have what God intended if you're willing to read it, hear it, and heed it. And that word heed has the idea that you keep it you guard it, and you obey it. God doesn't want you to just like uh, read this or have it preached and like, oh, that was interesting. i always been a little bit curious about that sort of stuff. And no big deal and just keep plowing on life on, your, on the way you've been going. No, God fully intends that we obey it, that we treasure it, that he, we heed it, that God transforms our lives through the ongoing reading, hearing, And heeding his word. And really, our Bible is incomplete without the book of Revelation. As some scholars have said, the book of Revelation is kind of like the grand central station of the Bible. What gets started all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis finds its fruition at the end, the culmination, the book of Revelation. There are multiple prophecies that are still awaiting. Fulfillment, namely the uh, eternal son of David, the Messiah, Christ, Jesus Christ, reigning on earth, having his kingdom visibly manifested on this earth. And you know what the book of Revelation does? It shows us what that will look like and what's all going to take before he comes back. It even shows us in chapter 19 what that return is going to look like. And, it's, and it really takes all the themes, that scarlet thread of redemption. It deals with uh, the nation of Israel, the Gentile nations, Satan, the Antichrist, uh, heaven, the millennial kingdom, the new heavens, new earth. All of that is covered, and it brings it all tied together. It's the book of Revelation. And so, friends, are you ready for the return of Jesus? Well, you are if you know what is to come, and you are following what he has said. And finally, we know that we are preparing for the return of Jesus when we are worshiping him for who he is. Take a look, verse 4. Who is Jesus? So John writes, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So John is writing to these seven churches. They're in Asia, like in, south, it's in um, southwest modern Turkey. And these churches are found in these seven cities. They were the actual postal districts. They all fit in about a 50-square-mile area. And starting from like the, the bottom, southwest, you can just go clockwise and you'll hit all seven of these churches. And so he's writing, and the original recipients of this of this letter are these seven churches, but they're information for all of us. And these are the people who are in the church, for the churches, these seven churches, remember? And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you in the church? Don't be thinking like, well, I'm in a building, I must be in the church. No, you're in a facility. To be in the church is to be in the body of Christ, meaning you have personally come and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. You've seen your sin, you realize you need a Savior, and you're trusting in Jesus and his perfect sacrifice for your sins. And when you believe in him, you are united with Christ and you are, and this is what's oftentimes missing, you are united with his people forever. You are in the church, and this letter is written to his bondservants, those who are in the church. The idea that, well, I'll have Jesus, my own little personal savior, and I'll do whatever I want, and I don't need other Christians. I don't need church. I need to gather. I don't need to do the one another's. I'm just doing my life on my own. I want you to know that's not New Testament Christianity. That is not what it means to be in the church. He's writing to those who, these churches. And notice what he says. He makes this statement that tells us that God is in control. Verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Grace, unmerited favor, the riches of relationship with Christ, and peace, that calm confidence that comes from knowing and trusting God boy, do I need this. I find that there are things that are going on in my life that I, I just lack peace. They can even keep me up at night. And what I need to do is go back to the one who gives grace and peace. It has to be intentional in prayer. God's, God, I need to just rest in your grace. I just need your peace. I need to know that you are in control and you've got this, even though I can't figure it out. And you know what? God gives me that peace. Why? Because He's the lover of my soul and He is the one who gives grace and peace. It comes from Him. God the Father, who was, who is, and is to come, that actually speaks of His eternality. And notice who else is giving grace and peace. It's also coming from the seven spirits. You see that at the end of verse 4? Who are before His throne. And you're like, oh, seven spirits, yikes, I don't, I don't even know what that means. Well, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And all throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to find all these Old Testament references. Here's one of them this is directly from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where you have the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. There are these different facets of the Spirit's work. Isaiah eleven two 2 actually outlines all seven of them. And so this is a reference of the fullness of God, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God along with the Father who actually gives us grace and peace. And then notice who else is giving grace and peace. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, and goes on to display who Jesus Christ is. Do you see that? At the very beginning of the revelation, you have God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. Jesus likely comes last because this book is the revelation of him. It's to show us who he is, his sovereign reign. And you're like, well, who is Jesus? Well, just look at this description. It'll fill you with awe. It'll fuel your worship. He is the, first of all, verse 5, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. That means that you and I can absolutely completely bank on everything that is revealed in this book. He is faithful. He is the faithful witness. Furthermore, he is the firstborn of the dead. That word, firstborn, is the Greek word prototokos. It's where we get our word prototype. And it means that he is the first one who is to to live and, and, and die, and rise again, to never die again. He is the first one of many. In fact, his resurrection is our guarantee that we will one day have resurrected bodies just like Jesus, fit for eternity. It is God's guarantee. And Jesus is the one who has this place of honor. He is the firstborn of the dead. And furthermore, and boy, this made a huge difference. For the early Christians, as it does for us today, he is, verse 5, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Do you see that? You see, when you're living in times of persecution, you're living in a world that you got maniacs that are in charge of governments. I want you to know, you may at times think like, oh, I, I think God is not in charge. Why would he allow all of this chaos? And people like this. I want you to know, the book of Revelation underscores that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Like it says in Psalm 2, there are going to be those who set themselves against the Lord and and of his anointed. And you see that. How many public world leaders do you find that are acknowledging God, worshiping him, and encouraging people to trust him? Anybody name anybody? There are very few. There's, There's not many that are out there that are willing to do that. But I want you to know, there is one who is in charge, isn't it? And his name is Jesus. And like it says in Psalm two four, He who is in heaven, He just laughs because He is in full control and He is going to accomplish His purposes. And you're, you know, as you read the Bible, you actually find wow, there are some examples of that. Just look at world history, like Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, remember him? He is the ruler of Babylon, and Daniel says, "Hey." You might want to be careful on that pride issue you got going because uh, it's not going to end out well for you. And remember Nebuchadnezzar, he's walking around in his palace, and he's like, look at my empire and all that I did. Remember that? You remember what God did? God said, okay, time for a little lesson for you. I'm going to turn you into a resident in your own state park. And we're going to do this for seven years, and you're going to eat grass like a cow, and things are going to happen to your skin that are going to be unparalleled, and it's going to be unpleasant for you. And they're not going to know what to do with you as you go ravaging around. But it says at the end of Daniel chapter 4 that reason returned to Nebuchadnezzar. And he wrote it in Aramaic, the trade language of the world, this declaration of the sovereignty of God and that all should yield to him. Well, God can do that. Remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a son named Belshazzar. And he didn't learn so many of the lessons from his dad. In fact, he's throwing a wild party, and it's this drunken rampage. And they have, remember they had the, all the utensils and the bowls that were used in the temple, and so he incorporates this in this drunken revelry, right? And they're all parting it up, right? They're having a great time, and they're mocking God, like ah, these are the these are Yahweh's bowls. Let's just drink out of these. And you remember, all of a sudden, a hand appears, and there's a finger, and there is writing on a wall, and it says "game." over. And I want your bells to turn. He's he's like, what's going on? You know, someone interpret this to me. And they eventually haul Daniel in and Daniel says, listen, your kingdom, it's going to be overthrown. And it was that very night, the Medo-Persian empire just took them over that very night. Or how about like um, Herod Agrippa? Remember in Acts chapter 12? And, you know, people were like trying to butter them all up. And they're like saying, you've got the voice of a God, not of a man. You're just awesome, right? And Herod Griffith was like, I like this. People worshiping me and thinking so great and saying all these amazing things about me and what I can do and my voice. I am the Roman idol, man. I love it. And you remember what God said? Well, God actually judged that man. He struck him down. And you can read, in four days, he was eaten by worms. God right now is just being patient. He is bringing people to salvation. But make no mistake, he's fully in charge, and his people know that. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then look at this. You want worship-fueled? Look what he says next in verse 5. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Whoa, this is exactly what I need. Him who loves us. Present tense, meaning he always is loving us, never ends. And he's released us from our sins. It's speaking of the atonement of Jesus, he died in our place. He wants us to live in his love. And I find the more that I'm resting and just living and rejoicing in the love of God, of Jesus Christ, what it does, it revives my heart. It fuels me with worship. It gives me the courage and the manner by which to move forward. And notice, he's given us a role. Verse 6, and he has made us to be a kingdom. We are actually in the reign of Jesus Christ. He's reigning in our hearts, and we are priests to his God and Father. When I say priest, what conjures up is in your mind likely is somebody with some ecclesiastical robes, fancy collar. I want you to know that's actually not helpful. Let me tell you what a priest is. A priest is someone who has access to God and tells others about him that you're serving him with his life. And I got news for you. If you're a Christian, you're a priest. So that imagery of, well, fancy collars and robes and stuff, frankly, that's not helpful. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know him, you're a priest, and God intends to use you. We who are redeemed have a role in this world, and as priests, we offer God our spiritual sacrifices of our ourselves, our person, our possessions our praise, and our service. We offer this to God because we are his priests. And notice he's using us for his purposes. We're priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, worship is the response to those who read the book of Revelation, who know who Jesus really is and what is to come. And then notice how it closes here, verse 7. Behold, this is a preview of coming retractions. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. He is coming in the clouds. This is right from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, the Shekinah glory, that glory cloud seen in the Old Testament, I want you to know Jesus is coming back in it, and he will be seen. Jesus... Uh, only at the time of the transfiguration where three of the apostles got to see Jesus in his glorified state, I want you to know the world will see him. And notice what it says here. Every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. Speaking of the Jews who handed Jesus over to the Romans to be pierced through on a cross. And all the tribes of the earth, this speaks of all the world, all the tribes who rejected him. Whether you're a Jewish rejecter or a Gentile rejecter, You are going to mourn if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Is this absolutely going to happen? Notice what he says, so be it, amen. And then you have this declaration. How certain are we that this is really going to happen? The Father signs it off, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And you're like, mourning? I thought the return of Jesus was supposed to be like a really happy, like joyous event. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you really know him? It will be. But if you do not, if right now you're still in your rebellion toward God and you're rejecting him, I want you to know you will face God as judge. You'll either trust him as Savior or face him as judge, and no man or woman can stand the judgment of God. it is going to happen, the Almighty says, you can guarantee. It. You know that devastating report that you got from your doctor? Remember that declaration that your spouse made, like, you know what? I don't really need you anymore. I'm going to go do my own life. I'm, I'm ditching you. I'm done with you. Or your rebellious kid or the chaos that's going on in your world or your work. I want you to know that is not the final word. Alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. It's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and it's the last. It speaks of God's eternity. The final statement rests with God, and he's in control. So are you ready for Christ's return? Well, you are preparing if you know what is to come. You're following what he said, and you're worshiping him for who he is. You see, when Christ is reigning in our hearts, we're ready for his return. And what we're going to do now is we're going to go right into communion. And I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, and then we're going to partake in communion together. The Bible warns that if you are not a believer, you should not partake. But if you do know him, this is our chance to really just focus and worship upon him. If you didn't get one of these cups, just put up one of your hands. One of the ushers will get them to you. So let me lead us in time of prayer. Lord, we come before you and we worship you. We worship you, Father, one who is, who was, and who is to come. We worship you, the Holy Spirit, and all your perfection. And the Son, the one who loves us, who has redeemed our life from the pit, we worship you. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the firstborn from the dead. If you have some unconfessed sin, why don't you just address that with God right now? Repent and receive his cleansing. Lord, we love you. We come before you in awe and in worship. And we remember Jesus Christ just as he said, the communion ordinance that he gave. And so we worship you in the name of Jesus. Amen.